I like how you always do this. You always hit record right after I give the best zinger of the day. Do you think... Rarely. Fair. Do you think that $7 is too much for a single pack of Tim Tams? So, I don't even know why you're asking the question, because I know you've already hit purchase. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I'm a real human person who loves and has been loved deep in my fleshy circulatory organ that definitely does not have a robust backup. I feel kinship with all of humanity. You are beautiful and bountiful and definitely not a buffet or a smorgasbord for vampire androids. Why would an android be a vampire anyway? Such strange questions from such tasty morsels. With me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. I think it would have been funnier if you said tasty mortals. <laughs> That's not what I said. I must have misspoken. Uh, it's possible I actually wasn't listening. <laughs> so this didn't come up last week, but while I was at Cloudfield Day, we had a guest from Tasmania. Oh. Who is not a devil, an actual person. And he brought with him about 10 packages of Tim Tams. Hence the obsession. And he left with zero. <laughs> <laughs> He's lucky he left alive. Uh, <laughs> are you made of Tim Tams? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've developed a new affinity. And it's a very dangerous one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And expensive. Because mm -hmm. they have to be imported from Australia. Because America can't make chocolate things good. That is 100% true. I'm not even ready to talk about the Cadbury egg situation. Jesus. Okay, so let's get a, a tangent of a tangent. Last time I was over in London, I got chocolate there and Cadbury chocolate at that. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell is this? This is not what it tastes like in America because we use American units or something. I don't, I don't know. But like, Part of that is part of the like dietary rules and, and stuff. Like you can't import it with X amount of chocolate or whatever. But I think the other part of it is that they they literally use different ingredients to mix the chocolate in Europe. And I'm pretty sure that the main ingredient is heroin. <laughs> Actually, I think the main ingredient is the fact that it's actual chocolate. Probably. It's probably not any more complicated than that. No, no. Because when I look at the chocolate and big air quotes here chocolate candy that like the kids bring home from the dollar tree or whatever like chocolate is kind of on there but it's like the fifth ingredient behind things i can't pronounce in sugar that'd be a good name for a uh good name for a cookbook things i can't pronounce and sugar <laughs> i think it would be a bestseller once again we have found something else to do goodbye everyone <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, that's not what we're going to talk about. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I am going in completely blind. Hit me with what you got, Chris. Cyber insurance underwriters predicting a long, sad data breach and ransomware attack filled 2024. In other news, water is wet. <laughs> that's right, folks. Our long national cyber nightmare is not over. Mm. Not by a long shot. In fact... Insurers, a.k.a. the people who do the most expensive kinds of predictions, think that, quote, cyber risk will increase greatly in 2024. Hmm. Woodruff Sawyer, 
a name so Caucasian it can only be in the insurance industry, (laughs) published their 2024 Looking Ahead Guide, which is like the sad, sad insurance version of the Farmer's Almanac. And they're thinking on all things IT security. Let's just go ahead and call it negative. No. Privacy violations and data breaches are at the forefront of concern, and our good friend ransomware remains the number one threat. AI will be used by the good guys to help protect the fort. Yay! But AI will similarly be used by bad guys to attack the fort. Mm. Hmm. I feel like I might have mentioned something along those lines about two weeks ago when we talked about how AI is going to destroy the internet. Great episode. Listen to it if you haven't. (laughs) A little self-plug there. (laughs) Wow. And yeah, that was sort of Part of the reason it was going to destroy the internet is because it's not just the good guys that have access to AI and lots of money. You are correct. Always. So the end result of all of this is actually what I want to focus on, not the technology itself, but let's talk about why this is going to make things harder and harder for consumers who are trying to purchase and or renew their cyber insurance. Ah, you hear that sound? That's the sound of 5,000 radios turning off at once. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're in a position in an organization that needs to buy cyber insurance, uh, this might be very important to you. Likewise, if you're on a security or ops team that's in charge of implementing policies that improve your security posture, also, this might be important to you. Yeah, and one thing else that they talk about in that uh, Looking Ahead guide Pricing is going to be interesting, shall we say, Mm. which we will get to in more detail as we go through, but it is going to get more complicated. The way that you apply for insurance, the rules that you have to follow are going to make it more difficult to get approved. So, so I thought, you know, we haven't had fun in a while on the show. (laughs) I like fun. And what's more fun than discussing the ins, outs, and what have you's of the cyber insurance industry, I ask you. (laughs) anyway that's what we're doing you knew what you were getting into you you clicked on the episode you saw the title (laughs) you fool (laughs) so real quick backstory oh there's actually a lot of ways to do insurance one of the oldest ways of doing it has a number of names you'll see it online called pooled insurance mutual insurance or collective insurance Mm -hmm. and the idea here is A lot of money is paid into a shared pool, hence the name, by a bunch of people. Usually they're of like-minded something. So you'll have Mm -hmm. a bunch of doctors or a bunch of teachers or what have you, right? And the idea is that pool is there to help out the various members when they encounter a disaster of some kind. Mm -hmm. Right? How old is this idea? Well, it was written into Hammurabi's code. (laughs) Well... Back in, you know, give or take 1750 BCE. All right. But the concept surely has its roots in prehistory. One thing that was specifically called out in the code stipulated that if many companies had goods on a boat and some goods had to be thrown overboard for whatever reason, bad seas, boat was in risk of sinking, etc. All the other companies that were shipping at the same time would compensate for the loss. Ah. So it became everybody's shared risk. If one person was injured by their goods having to be thrown away, everybody helped out. Okay. 
This kind of risk management strategy is very community oriented. So, of course, America hates it. Oh, yeah. Garbage. It does exist, though, like I said, in small pockets, in a lot of industries all over the country. Some examples off the top of my head, there are ones that, ironically enough, farmers pay into these types of things because sometimes you just can't predict a bad harvest. Right. And the three farmers around you might all have good harvests because of whatever reason. And so by supporting each other with this sort of insurance coverage, each of you is protected against a bad season. So that's the one kind of insurance. The other kind of insurance is the one that we all think about and what we're really going to focus on. This is where a gigantic individual company, or an individual, actually, you know, the names that you always hear of, AIG or Chubb or Mm -hmm. whoever, with billions upon billions of dollars in the bank, they will sell you a policy on a, you guessed it, individual basis. Well, you did say America, and we are all about individualism. This kind of insurance started to become a thing around the 13th and 14th century, although the dates are really disputed depending on the source that you go to. And I went Mm -hmm. to many because, of course, I did. Naturally. And anyway, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip forward a few centuries to the subject at hand. But if this history and this growth of the concept of insurance interests you at all, there will be a link to a detailed and very nicely illustrated historical Ooh. analysis on insurance history provided by a company called Swiss Re, Swiss RE, mm-hmm. available in the show notes. It's basically a graphic novel about insurance. I am conflicted about that existing, and I might have to <laughs> check it out. <laughs> so anyway, cyber insurance is an individual insurance, and it might come as a shock how late in internet history it actually became a saleable thing. Hmm. And again, it's not easy to tell who was first. Wikipedia credits Lloyd's of London in 2000 for selling the first fully covered and self-contained cyber insurance policy. But a Slate article about the history of cyber insurance credits AIG back in 1997. And this is the one I'm going with. Even though it doesn't cover everything, It was definitely the first time internet usage was the basis of at least a theoretical cyber policy. And I call it cyber theoretical because the cyber policy wasn't all that popular as a product in 1997. (laughs) Yes, shocking. AIG called it internet security liability, and it was focused only on e-commerce. So, like, come on, that's close enough. Close, yeah. The policy would, quote, provide up to $250,000 in legal costs and settlement fees if customer credit card numbers were stolen from the company's servers and a credit card company subsequently sued the firm for failing to protect those credit card numbers, unquote. Hmm. So, like I said, a little narrow, but it's tied to IT so close enough. If we think about, like, 1997, what people were doing with the internet, the thing that was going to cause you the most damages is something like that, that you were running an e-commerce website and that it was hacked and that you lost credit card information. Pretty much everything else that was on the internet was, I won't say it was worthless, but it didn't have the kind of value that you would insure against. There was a lot of blink and iframes. That's what I remember. (laughs) A lot of angel fire being dusted around. (laughs) Not angel dust, (laughs) though that may have been involved. 
So for this policy, the cost was $2,500 per year, discounted to $1,875 if your company passed a security audit. So boom, there we have the bones of the thing. $250,000 of coverage is a pittance in today's numbers for any business <laughs> that is serious, but it was in 1997. Things were a little yeah. different back then. Just a tad. Now, things moved quickly. They got complex in the early aughts as viruses and hacks made the news. This was the time where people stopped doing hacks just to get street cred. Right. And they were like, wait a minute, we can do crime. Mm. We should do a crime. Mm. As these things made the news, as people became aware of them, policies got more complex, covered more things. As a part of that, underwriting got more rigorous. Audits, in many cases, became mandatory. And the audits often extended into business practices as policy, as well as technical defenses. So how are you operating in addition to how are you protecting yourself? So fast forward to very recent past, and we hit on the current cyber insurance crisis. According to a report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, I'm not sure why I had to tell you what the acronym is because I'm never going to mention them again. (laughs) (laughs) While the demand for cyber insurance has grown with more clients opting for coverage from 26% in 2016 up to 47% in 2020, the industry, that is the cyber insurance industry, has faced Mm -hmm. challenges due to the rising cost of cyber attacks and recovering from said cyber attacks. This scenario has led to major increases in insurance premiums that can only be described as hockey stick level graphics. As insurers rush to adjust, covering the heightened risk and financial damages from such large-scale attacks, such as, drumroll please, (laughs) our good friend ransomware, (laughs) which, if you'll remember, saw ransom demands flat-out double from 2020 to 2021. Wow. Consequently, insurers became more selective about coverage, reducing limits for higher-risk organizations and industries and or increasing premiums. Yeah, I mean, the general idea behind an insurance company is that they will write policies that they believe will never be cashed in. Mm -hmm. They've got actuaries, teams of actuaries that do all kinds of Monte Carlo simulations to determine the likelihood of any given policy actually being redeemed. Right. And that's part of how they set what the premiums will be to pay into that policy is determining the inherent risk of any given policy. And the reason I know this is because I worked at a secondary insurance company for seven years. <laughs> you pick stuff up just from osmosis and also upgrading the desktops for the actuaries to put like GPUs in them. There's a lot of math, is what I'm saying. Yep, and it's interesting that you say that because the Chicago Fed did an extensive write-up about the industry's challenges even before the major recent explosions of premiums. And the point that they made was simple. Cyber insurance is still kind of new. (laughs) As such, insurers have a real hard time because they don't have historical data on how to price it, what to look for, what should or should not be covered. It's, you know, really hard to assess the level of risk when you don't know what data you should be looking at or you just don't have any data. Right. For the better part of 20 years, they were just kind of guessing. Mm -hmm. The types of things that you were talking about, like let's talk about auto insurance. 
we've had auto insurance since the year after we had autos, <laughs> which if you're doing the math at home is 500 years. Easily. Very different. And, you know, the models that you're talking about, oftentimes they're just little tiny incremental tweaks year mm -hmm. over year. But with cyber insurance, things are moving so fast and the numbers are getting so large that they're going crazy. The models can't, cannot keep up. Right. The example that I was thinking of, because it's the industry that I was supporting, was life insurance. And so for life insurance, they take a look at the potential insured's medical records, their family history, and their other demographics. And then they plug those into mortality tables and a mortality model, which determines the most likely outcome of when this person is going to die. Right. So if you ever want something real grim. <laughs> Side point, my thinking was life insurance companies, they're going to be the basis for when we finally figure out how to live forever. Right. When you can't get life insurance anymore. Well, no, you'll just never cash it out. That's the interesting thing is they constantly had to update and adjust their models for any medical breakthroughs that were happening because that could extend the life of the individuals that they were attempting to insure or reinsure. Right. But you had, you know, hundreds of years of data to work off of, as well as all the census data that comes out from the U.S. government and other sources to determine and create that mortality model. And even when something does happen, the numbers don't change all that much. You know, one example was when statins became a thing. That dramatically changed people's lifespans, but it changed their lifespans by like seven years. <laughs> That's right. not nothing. And take your freaking statins if you need them. Stop being a baby. Are you looking at yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. But the numbers and the, the consequences of cyber insurance are just moving so fast. For example, in 2018, ransom payments averaged $5,000. <laughs> this seems so laughably small. I know. <laughs> what? By 2023, the average had increased 29,900% to wow. $1.5 million. That does sound a little more reasonable, though. You show me the actuary that can keep up with that. <laughs> so along with this, unsurprisingly, cyber insurance claims... And prices shot up as well from 1818. That's good. From <laughs> 2018 to 2020, claims doubled every year and then redoubled in 2021. Wow. Now, those numbers for an insurance industry that never, ever wants to pay anybody anything are insane and caused premiums to keep going up. Ratings House Fitch noted that premiums went up 74% from 2020 to 2021, which now sounds like a lot, but if you're keeping score at home, is not 200%. Mm -hmm. And here we have the part that they didn't like. Insurance companies were losing money on cyber insurance policies. And they don't like losing money. No. Now, cyber insurance is sort of a, it exists in a weird world. It's not required by law. And the policies that exist aside from just basic contract law, have no oversight by governments or by anybody else. Two things that the already discussed and infuriating auto, health, and life insurance markets do have. Mm -hmm. As such, it becomes very difficult to shop for. Now, cyber insurance brokers do have a strong incentive to keep their customers safe. 
to the point that you made earlier, the best insurance policy from the seller's point of view is the one that never gets cashed in. Exactly. (laughs) Hence the ever-increasing rigidity of policy requirements. Back in 2000, they were asking for effectively name, rank, serial number, how much did your company make, and gave you a discount if you installed Tripwire once. (laughs) And then you uninstalled it three days later because it was a huge pain in the butt. Oh my God, so many alerts. As of 2023, your company will not only have to have cybersecurity tools and policies in place, such as identity and access controls, password vaults, mandatory multi-factor authentication, but also personnel training. Oh. Delinea's 2023 State of Cyber Insurance Report laid out the situation plainly. Expect to pay double what you paid last year for your policy. Expect to pay for and deploy new security solutions before you can get approved. And expect the required audits to take a lot longer than they ever did before. Payouts are going to be capped. And crucially, if you or your company are found at all culpable due to malfeasance or inadequate security, that policy probably won't pay out. Yep. The top reasons for payout denials all tie back to everything I just said, but they lead up to security controls, as in policy, internal bad actors, human error, and not following procedure. So, you know, your company's got a lot to talk to itself about. And most importantly, don't lie on that policy application. (laughs) They will find out. And definitely don't let the CEO's nephew exclude his frat bros from having to use MFA. Mm. Or the CEO themselves. (laughs) Right. Let me tell you, again, as someone who has worked at smaller companies that, you know, may have been family owned, I can say with certainty that the least secure individuals were the ones at the top because they demanded it. Don't inconvenience me was basically. I don't have time for MFA. (laughs) I don't have time to change my password ever (laughs) or make it difficult to type. Actually, I don't want a password. (laughs) Can you just make that happen? Make it go (laughs) away. Well, we might be coming back around to that point now. I think, ironically, the main outcome of making cyber insurance require all of these security implementations is actually going to make companies more secure and force them to finally take security seriously something that they've paid lip service to for the last 10 years but when it actually came to writing the check or doing the thing they've refused to do it right and it puts us all as consumers in an interesting place because everything i've said is kind of bad news yeah so you might be wondering to yourself self hmm. is cyber insurance even worth it that's definitely not what i was wondering And the answer to my question, because we don't care about your question. Fair. The answer to my question is, and I know that you knew (laughs) that I was going to say this, but it's complicated. (laughs) I thought you were going to say it depends, but that works too. Oh, that would have been better. (laughs) It's dependently complicated. No, that doesn't work. It's complicatedly dependent? Mm. We'll workshop it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So here's the thing. By this point, a lot of muckety-mucks have heard of cyber insurance. And they like the idea. Mm -hmm. Therefore, a lot of boards of trustees for large companies are just 
mandating it. We as company X will have cyber insurance costs be damned. Reason for that is that people at the top are fully aware of the crazy financial harm that can come from a cyber incident. You know, forget about the cost of recovering because if you don't have the money to do that, that could be a business ending event, which if you're in business, business ending is bad. Generally. Yeah. Yeah, I had to, I had to Google that, but I, I did confirm it. Oh, yeah. And additionally, many companies of it, even a moderate size are being asked or required to have it before they can do business with other companies. Hmm. B2B markets sometimes just flat out say, do you have cyber insurance? Too many companies are interconnected via technological things. And they're like, you have to have insurance before I will use your goods, use your services, etc." Sure. I personally had cyber insurance at one point in my life for precisely this reason. Even though the work that I was doing could in no way injure a client if I personally were breached. It was just a flat-out non-starter. You want to do this consulting work? You have to have cyber insurance. All right. That was weird. I didn't like it. A little bit. Did you have to audit yourself? <laughs> Luckily, I was not to the point where an audit was actually required because it was under the fiscal damage threshold that they had, mm. which was, I mean, the number in terms of that, in terms of modern insurance, I mean, the number for that forced requirement was, I think, $2 million. Ah, I so, wasn't making $2 million. No? No. Unfortunate. Yeah. You're telling me. <laughs> I've only got this one yacht. It's fucking lonely. <laughs> anyway, cyber insurance. My thinking on the matter is simple. Your company is going to be a target, whether you have cyber insurance or not. Mm -hmm. The whole thing about, oh, our company is too small to be a target is nonsense. The vast majority of targets that are not either political or insider-based, are random. Which yeah. means Jim's Flower Shop is a target. So you and your company will need to continue to improve your cybersecurity posture on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. This kind of responsible behavior will help with the cost of cyber insurance especially because it means that you will be able to reliably prove your security posture by passing a third-party audit. So plan for that. <laughs> Invest in security, and if the board or whomever demands insurance on top of it, maybe, and this is a big maybe, they can find a way to pay for it that doesn't gut the IT budget. <laughs> right. My argument here is simple. Insurance of any kind is a financial tool not a technical one. So tell your CFO to go ahead and sharpen his little pencil and get to work. <laughs> Say it loud in the hallway. Maybe poke him in the chest in front of a crowd. They love that. That's what I hear. Yeah. It's one thing I know about CFOs. They love to be embarrassed and belittled. In public. In public. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> in private, you know, who knows? I mean, if you can have a PBR tall boy in your other hand while you do it, I think that just, you know, Chef's kiss. <laughs> Indeed. Another interesting facet that I want to point out here is the change in the stance of insurance companies forces companies of all kinds that are going to search out this insurance to meet a baseline minimum. 
that means they're not going to go above and beyond that baseline minimum. So when you set the floor, that's where people are going to meet you at. That's a fair point. Which is sad. You know, I actually had, as a part of writing this, an actual insurance application. I had one from 2006, I think it was, and I had one from this year. And talk about baseline and complexity. The one from 2006 was four pages long. (laughs) Okay. Can I guess how long the one for this year is? 36? No, it wasn't that bad. It's 18 pages. (laughs) It's still more. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think beyond that, another thing to bear in mind is if you're a security professional, this is an opportunity for you because your skills are now going to be in demand, especially for whatever the minimum the insurance companies are requiring. So probably good to study up on what those insurance companies or cyber insurance companies are saying they want and be an expert in implementing those things. If that's the case, you will have no trouble getting employment. Yeah, agreed and agreed. And in fact, a lot of insurance companies will also already have a, you know, a recovery company that's part of them. So mm-hmm. if you do have a customer that gets breached, well, here's the company that will help you get unbreached, <laughs> which is a technical term. Indeed. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can sit on the couch, read through a cybersecurity insurance application, and fill it out in triplicate. You've earned it. You can find more about the show by visiting our LinkedIn page. Just search Chaos Lever or go to our website, chaoslever.cow, where you'll find show notes, blog posts, and general tomfoolery. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. cute that you think triplicate would be enough. If it's good enough for the Bogons, it's good enough for me.